Uh, we are clearly going to be talking this morning about singleness, um, uh, and so that's what we're going to be doing. And, um, but if you're visiting with us, we're just glad you're here. You know, this, this week, um, we, uh, we, we actually sat down with some people that were single in our congregation and asked them a little bit about what it's like to be single, and we videotaped that. And so enjoy the video to hear about some, some people from our congregation, what it's like to be single. The sun is getting brighter. Okay. Yeah, what is singleness like? Um, it just uh, is it really being single is. Um, uh, that is a complicated question. Singleness, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of freedom in singleness. Figuring out what to do with your life, what to do with your extra time. Well, if you're single, it just feels like normal life, I guess. You know, you you can have your own opinions, and you have you know friends and family that that obviously influence you, but I have a lot of more personal decisions that I can make and like I really don't have to think about like myself in making those. There's an opening line to book that says it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And I think that's kind of how singleness feels. It's it's like you're not complete yet. Dude, yeah, I already have friends getting engaged like left and right. It's crazy and they're like my age or younger. It's It's cool, like I'm really excited for them. It's bad enough to be a pastor because a lot of people don't get you. But if you add that you're single. Like sometimes I'll go to places and I'll, like, I'll be like the only single one. And you know, they like pair up and I'm just kind of like, cool. Like, all right, like I'm, I'm right here. When I first became single was back a long time ago and it was almost like you were a criminal. <laughs> I feel like one of the places where it's hardest to be single and where it can often feel the loneliest is actually in the church. The church didn't know what to do with you. People were wondering what you'd done wrong. I think it can feel like looking in at the window at a dinner party, um, to which I have not received an invitation. And a really good friend of mine said, stop whining, get on with your job. You've got three kids, do it. The loneliness of being single has in some ways driven me to a deeper relationship with God and experiencing Him with me. In many ways, you just don't have distractions when it comes to um, prayer and kind of creating a life in which you really have a sense of yourself being with God in this world. Freedom to pursue what I feel like God has called me to do. Because we're all on you know, our own individual journeys with God. God has like a purpose and a plan for us. And I think if we end up with somebody, like that's just gonna be part of that journey. It's not like the beginning of something that we're trying to like get to to start. Um, so Christian singleness is just the same thing of just following God and just being faithful to Him and just relying on Him and, and all that we do. You can do it. You can be single and effective. My name is Jonathan Lee. My name is Hannah. My name is Robert Cavolo. My name is Joan Alexander. And I'm single. I'm single, okay, all right. What do you hear when you hear the word single? Do you hear God's second best? Do you hear loneliness? Do you hear deficient? Do you hear plan B? Uh, do you hear someone in a position that needs to be remedied by marriage? Today there are more singles in the United States than ever before. In fact, uh, a 2017 census showed us that roughly half of all Americans are single. In 1960, that number was only one quarter. We know that post-millennials will be the generation that lives more of their lives as singles than any other generation in the history of our country. So now more than ever, we need to ask the question, 
What does the Bible say about singleness? And this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about singleness at the church, talks to the Corinthian church about singleness. And as we hear Paul give instructions to those who are single this morning, I want us to listen. Listen to what Paul thought of. See if you can hear what Paul thought of when he heard the word singleness. What came to his mind? Now, that was a long passage, and we're not going to cover everything clearly, right? What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to focus in, I'm going to zoom in on three different groups that Paul gives counsel to. The first group is those who uh, are single, but not by any choice of their own, and that's found in verses 6 to 9. And then we're going to look at to those who are single who are considering marriage in verses 25 to 38. And then finally, we're going to look at some advice that Paul has for everyone in verses 17 to 24. So if you're married this morning, don't worry, you're going to get a little zinger too coming your way. So hang in there, all right? All right. First, we're going to look at what Paul says to those who are single by no choice of their own. And really to summarize it in verses 6 to 9, here's what Paul wants to say to those of us who are single by no choice of their own. Paul says, it is good to be single. It is good to be single. Let's look at this passage again. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Paul starts off by saying, I have a concession. Now, what's a concession? A concession is where you grant something somebody, right, to somebody. It's something where you say, okay, I'm going to give you what you asked. And what is it that Paul is conceding? Well, Paul is conceding what the Corinthians said at the beginning of the chapter, which they said, is it good just to avoid marriage? And Paul says, I'm going to concede to you that actually you're on to something here. You are on to something. Paul concedes that in his judgment, he thinks that a single life is a good thing for a Christian to pursue. Now, I want us to stop for a second and realize how radical it is that Paul says it is good to be single. Paul lived as a Jew, and within his religion, it was considered a very bad thing to be single. In fact, it was nearly, it was nearly compulsory. It was definitely the expectation, if you were a Jewish male, that you would you'd fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply and it was thought if you didn't get married, something was off. On top of that, Paul was in the Roman Empire, and there were laws. It was actually compulsory to be married in the Roman Empire. Now, it wasn't enforced often, but everyone would look at you like you are an embarrassment to yourself if you were single. In fact, the entire ancient world was known for this. It was known for this idea that to not be married was a problem. It was a serious problem. Because it was an honor society. The ancient world was an honor society, and the way you maintained your honor was you needed to have family. You needed to have heirs. You needed to be somebody that had a future. And if you were single, you disappeared. If you were single, you were seen as a non-entity. And within this world, Paul says, in contrast to nearly all the ancient religions and all the ancient cultures, Paul says, and this is something that's unique about Christianity, that being a single adult is a viable way to live life. 
And that was a radical idea. It's a radical idea that has impacted the history of the world. To understand how radical Paul is here, we need to stop and think about this. You know, Paul is saying something really amazing. Paul is saying that to be a follower of Christ, being single is a great way to do that. It is a great way to do that. In some ways, it makes sense. You know, if you're going to follow Jesus, being single kind of makes sense because guess what Jesus was? Guess who the most perfect person that ever walked the earth, the most complete person, the fullest picture of humanity we've ever had was a single person. Now, you look at other religions. Mohammed married. Moses married. Buddha married, right? Married, married, married. But we come across Jesus, and he is not married. And in fact, this is a unique contribution, like I said, that Christianity brings, that singleness is viewed as something that is good. And this was picked up in church history. If you read the history of the church, you see that single people got together they formed communities for good. They, they, they formed communities so they could start hospitals and hospices, so they could take care of orphans. This, this was called monasticism. It's where they took this idea that singleness is a good and that single people can join together and do great things for God, and they took it serious. And yes, it became corrupt. You know, this church comes out of a tradition where there was a critique of that, right? The Reformation. The Reformation showed some abuses within that. And in many ways, the church then went the opposite direction to where if you walk into churches, oftentimes, if you're single, people kind of give you the nonverbals. People ask the leading questions. Oh, where's your other half? Right? Or they just kind of give you the look, or, you know, just, and you're like, okay, I feel it. Most social pressure is nonverbal. And this is sad. This is weird. This is strange, especially in light of what Paul says. Paul says it is good to be single. Now, it's, it's, I'm single. Okay, clearly I was in the video, right? That was me with the, ba- I wasn't hiding, by the way. I was wearing a baseball cap that day. Um, and I have to say, I hear the awkward jokes. If I'm in church, I hear the awkward jokes from the pastor. And it makes me think to myself, you know what, buddy? You're off. You are way off. You should be the opposite. You should read the Apostle Paul. There's this guy that wrote the Bible, and he's saying something very different from you. And one of the great ironies is, is that when churches are looking for pastors, and I've heard this from my single friends, quite often they get passed up because they don't have a a family. And they would pass up the same Apostle Paul they read from every Sunday if he was applying for a job. And that is very strange. It's, It's inconsistent. To be single is a good thing, Paul says. It's a good thing. Now, this is a great passage because it shows us insight into what it meant for Paul to be single. It's actually the clearest picture we have into Paul's personal life. Now, we know that Paul was unmarried. Paul says that right here. But the next question is, what did it look like for Paul to be unmarried? What was his unmarried life like? Many of us assume that Paul had just never been married, that maybe Paul, I mean, you know, you know, Paul himself, you know, maybe he was just kind of, you know, short and stature and not that handsome, and it just never worked out for Paul, you know? Well, this is almost certainly not the case. Remember, Paul grew up in a society where there was a, a tremendous amount of pressure. Paul's own faith showed that if you were going to be a Jew, a pious Jew, it was 
it was expected that you would have a wife. But if you were going to be a Pharisee on top of that, because Paul says he was a Pharisee, that means like you are a leader, a religious leader. It would be unthinkable that you were not married. And so it's almost certainly not the case that Paul just simply had never been married, which leaves us two other options. The first option is this. Maybe Paul had a wife, and when he became radicalized through this idea that the crucified Messiah was the world's true king, and he began began sharing that, his whole life became focused on that, his wife left him. There's a good chance that's the case. In fact, only a few verses down, we talked about this last week, Paul says that if someone is a believer and their unbelieving wife or or husband leaves them, they are no longer bound. Paul may be speaking about his own condition. Paul might be someone who went through a separation, a very painful separation. There's another option that I think is more plausible than he just always been single. And the other option is that Paul's wife had died in childbirth which was very common in the first century. And if that's the case, um, then Paul was a widower. And in fact, there's actually even stronger textual support for this idea. Look what it says right here in the text. To the unmarried man and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. That little phrase there, the unmarried men, tois agamois in Greek, um, actually can be translated widowers. And in fact, it makes a lot more sense. To the widowers and the widow, I say, it's best that they remain unmarried as I am. And so, Paul here might in fact be a widower. But here's why this is important. This is the takeaway. What this means is that Paul knew what it was like to be married, and Paul knew what it was like to have gone through the trauma and to be single. Paul knew the joys And Paul knew the sorrows of married life, but Paul also knew what it meant to go through separation or death and to suffer and find himself as a single when he did not expect to find himself there. And Paul then says this. Listen to what this really means. Paul is saying, if you, like myself, find yourself in the circumstances where for reasons beyond your control, you are single that is a good place to be. Did you catch that? If you, as a result of circumstances beyond your control, find yourself single, that is a great place to be. That is good. That has, ad- that has certain advantages. Now, I want us to let that sink in for a second, because that goes against what typically we think When someone walks in our doors and they've gone through a divorce or they're suffering the loss of a spouse, and we think, oh, what a tragic story. What a tragedy. Let's just pat them on the back. Maybe maybe their life won't be such a mess. Not Paul. That's not how Paul sees it. Paul says, if that's you, you are in a good place. Well, how could he say that? How could he say that? Maybe you're saying, well, that's, that's easy for Paul to say. He had the gift. (laughs) Great, Paul. I'm glad that's good for you to be single. You've got the gift. And Paul says this, right? He says that each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. But what does Paul mean by the gift? See, we oftentimes assume what Paul is saying when he says that each has his own gift and that if you're married, you've got the the gift of marriage. Oh, that's the gift I want. 
but I'm single and I got this, you know, I, I don't want that gift, you know. We oftentimes think that Paul just simply had no sexual interest, that Paul lacked any desire for marriage, that a beautiful woman would walk in and Paul was just completely unable to recognize it, that somehow he was that guy. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's the case. You know, Paul's gift, I believe, laid in his capacity, and we'll use Freudian terms here, laid in his capacity to move beyond both repression and gratification, and that his sexual energies would be redirected towards powerful work in God's kingdom to great effect. I know, that was kind of Freudian, right? (laughs) You guys are serious this morning. All right. Um, I believe that that as a result of God's work in Paul's life, he was able to take his singleness with all the complexity of that, and as God worked in his life, he was able to channel that to great good and great effectiveness for God's work. And in fact, when we think about what a gift is, I think this works well with it. A gift is defined not in regards to the presence or absence of some kind of thing in our lives, but in regards ultimately to its potential for helping and serving others. That is the core understanding of a gift. That's how we understand. Gifts are always given for serving others. They are not for ourselves. A gift is something that God gives us to build up others. And if you are single, you have a certain gift. And the question is not if you have that gift. The question is, are you going to use that gift? In fact, in Romans 12, Paul says, having gifts, let us use them. Think about that for a second. So if this is the case, and this is how I read it, if this is the case, this is what it means. That each one, each one, everyone has been given a gift, one of one kind, singleness, one of another, married life, Everybody's been given something. Now the question is, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to sit on your little gift? Are you going to complain about your gift? Or are you going to use the opportunities and the advantages you have as someone that's been given that in order to love and bless the world in the name of Jesus? That's pretty cool, right? I mean, I, I mean I, I'm just, now where do I get this reading? I get it because I've met a lot of single people and I've never met anybody with the gift of no interest. I mean, maybe I've missed them, okay? Maybe there's somebody out there that they've just been cut off. I think, I think practically I've experienced this myself. I've experienced through God's work, God has taken my singleness and he's channeled it and he continues to do that. And there are lonely nights and there are moments where you're wishing that you could share that with somebody. But there's also this tremendous potential there if you're single. And God can, and the Holy Spirit can work within that and move us in places where we have a certain kind of freedom and energy and focus. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. So, are you single? Are you using that gift? (laughs) Amen. And are are you married? Are you using that gift? Are you just simply trying to suck the life out of your spouse in your own narcissistic world? (laughs) Now, let's talk about, a lot of us might think, and maybe in the church we tend to look down on singleness, but out there in the world, singleness is seen as a great boon, and a large part of that is because of our hookup culture, right? And there is nothing more far away 
from using your singleness to bless others than our hookup culture. What is our hookup culture? Well, if you haven't been in the dating world for a while, let me tell you, it's pretty disturbing. A lot of people no longer even date. They forego that, and they're just getting together for sexual liaisons, okay? Welcome to Sunday morning. We're talking about this, all right? But it's real. It's really what's going on. This, I'm not making this up. It's, our, it's been documented. It's the hookup culture that's developed, you know? And those, those of us who've met people that immediately want to move to some kind of sexual interaction, it, you're like, this is real. This is all around us. And the question of whether or not you're going to date, whether or not you're going to develop a relationship or get to know somebody, that, that's secondary to the liaison. And if, if that is you this morning, I think there's not a better word than what Paul says right here. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you're somebody that lacks self-control, ultimately what's going on there is you're, you're dehumanizing yourself and you're dehumanizing others. Because at the end of the day, we long for intimacy. We long to be known. We long to be cared for. I think a lot of the hookup culture is because people have become so jaded by the possibility of even having intimacy that they've just given up. And it's sad. But, but here's an encouragement. We said it's better to marry, not to marry. I, here's the encouragement. The encouragement is like, there is hope in Jesus. If you walked in here today and you have found yourself giving up, there is hope. Through Christ's power, you can move away from the addictive cycle of just using and being used to being drawn into intimacy, and it can start in this community. It can start with friendships in this community. In fact, that ought to be a mark of the church, right? The kind of friendships and richness where we feel loved and known, and we can practice that kind of treating each other with humanity and dignity and love such that people that walk in who maybe are jaded because they've given up actually get hope again, you know. And, and at the end of the day, I had one of my favorite, uh, uh, I would call them sages, is a guy named James Houston, and he had a great quote. The solution to lust is not abstinence, and it's not marriage, it's love. Let's face it, you know, you, some of you say like, oh, well, you know, the solution to lust is marriage. That's not what's being said here. I don't think Paul's saying that if you get married, then you're no longer going to have lust. If you're married, you know that. Sexual temptation comes when you're single, and it comes when you're married, okay? I think what Paul is pointing to here is that it's better to redirect yourself towards a loving, committed relationship. Take your sexual energies and realize those were meant to be within the context of a genuine covenant relationship, right? That's where that belongs, and that's where sex no longer is a fire that burns out of control, but it's something where it moves you into your humanity. That's what Paul's saying. But the solution, the solution to lust is love. The solution, and by the way, it doesn't have to mean romantic love. Those of us who are single know that one of the greatest antidotes to sexual temptation is to maintain close contact with your same-sex friends because we long for intimacy, and your worst times are when you're alone. And if you're married and you're struggling with temptation, you're probably lonely in your marriage. Bring that to your guy friends. Bring that, to, bring that to the people in your life. Be honest and genuine and sincere. We all need that. We're all sexual creatures, and we all can feel the power of loneliness. So Paul says, move that away from simply abandoning yourself 
to using and being used and move towards relationship. And then that just naturally flows into Paul's next group he's talking to. He talks next to those considering marriage. And this is found in verses 25 to 38. We're not going to read all of it, but this is what he says. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. In this section, we see Paul's ethical reasoning. Paul frames everything in light of a two-prong approach. First, Paul looks at the commands of Jesus. Paul looks at the commands of Jesus, and he asks, and that kind of frames his thinking. And within those commands then, those set the boundaries, he thinks through a number of situations and shows that there is more than one way to approach a situation. In other words, Paul believed that moral categories are insufficient when it comes to living well. Let me say that one more time. Paul believed that moral categories were insufficient when it comes to living well. It isn't just about crunching moral categories. You also need wisdom. And Paul here is saying that we need to have wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is practical, practical knowledge. It's being realistic about the realities that exist. And we see this happening three times. There's three things that Paul wants people to be wise about here. The first is just practical realities. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Now, most likely the distress Paul's talking about is the massive famine that took place about the time Paul wrote this letter. We know that there was a severe shortage of grain throughout the Roman Empire. Corinth was a Roman city. Roman cities traditionally waited for the empire to provide for them if they were going through a regional famine. This was a famine throughout the Roman Empire, and for the first time, the empire was completely out of grain. And by the way, back then, if you got married, children did follow. And so Paul's saying, probably not the best time to start a family when we don't even have any, any food. If you don't have a job, probably not the best time to get married. There are practical realities, and you need wisdom. And so Paul says, um, here's some practical realities. Think about it. Can you provide? Can you make this work? Then Paul talks about taking into account marital realities. Have wisdom about that. Those who marry will have troubles, and I would spare you, Paul says. And every single person in the house said, amen. (laughs) Just kidding. If I'm ever feeling like, oh, I wish I was married, you know what I do? I just ask my married friends, like, hey, how's your marriage going, you know? Oh, you know, we're working through this and that and blah, blah, blah. Like, all right, good luck with that, right? (laughs) Hey, marriage is not a cakewalk, right? It's not. Now, some marriages are harder than others, but all of them take work, right? And so Paul here wants people to be realistic about that. If you meet somebody and they've met somebody three weeks ago and they're getting married and they're engaged, you know what you tell them? Whoa! (laughs) Whoa, 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 time out. There's no way you could have possibly begun to absorb what it is you're entering into. There's a a famous Dutch proverb I like which says, don't spend the seasons of your life with somebody who you haven't spent the seasons of a year with. That's that's wisdom, right? This is good common sense. Um, And in the standard, uh, standard, uh, uh, well, the Book of Common Prayer where the standard marriage ceremony starts like this, dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God in the face of this company, joined together this man, this woman, in holy matrimony, which is commended of St. Paul. 
to be honorable among men and therefore is not by any means to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. <laughs> That's a good place to be, right? Marriage, you should have a little bit of a, yeah, some serious humility about what marriage is going to ask of you. But then finally, Paul points to not just practical realities and marital realities, but then he points to spiritual realities that we need to take into account. And um, uh, this is found in the next uh, verses. This is what Paul says. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Spiritual realities. What do we mean? That's a very, you know, nebulous phrase. Paul had a very clear picture about the trajectory of the world and of world history and where we fit within that. And Paul believed that that trajectory had incredible bearing on the actual day-in and day-out choices we make every day. This is really profound. Paul says, The appointed time has grown very short, for the present form of this world is passing away. See, Paul believed, and he's reminding his readers, that we live in between the first and the second coming of the Messiah. You know, many people thought the Messiah would come one day, and when he came... He would, you know, remove all brokenness and sin and death and problems, and that's right. But what we see actually happening is that the Messiah comes twice, first in weakness and then in power, first to begin the kingdom and then to bring the kingdom in its fullness. And we right now, here and now, live in the overlap of these two ages. That's what Paul means. Now, I pay attention to the very, very complex diagram up, <laughs> up here, Okay. Right, exactly, see? Um, Josh is not the only one that can draw squiggly lines up here, all right? Um, so Paul says we live between two ages, the old age, which is passing away, and the new age, which was inaugurated when Christ came, and Christ is coming again. But we're in this very, very fragile, interesting place in history. And when you are here, since one age is passing away and a new age is coming, you should live everything in reference to that age that is breaking in everything in reference to that. Christians do not, Christians do marry. Christians mourn. Christians rejoice. Christians buy and sell. Christians have jobs. Christians do all kinds of things, but they do everything in light of the future, in light of this age that is breaking in. Now, if something horrible happens, we should mourn, but here's the deal. If you're a Christian, you don't get out of control. You don't overdo it. Of course we should moan, we should we, mourn, we should own our griefs, we need to, but here's the thing, it's not the end of the story if you're a Christian, because we know that the Bible tells us that God is bringing a kingdom, and one day He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And if something good happens, right, we should rejoice, but here's the deal, don't pour all your hopes and dreams into that thing. See, what happens when we live in light of the future is we have a certain kind of stability and we hold things lightly. And this is what Paul is talking about. Now, some of you husbands are thinking like, wow, I thought it meant those who have 
wives live as though they have none, like, man, it was going to be poker night every night this week. Sorry, guys. Okay? (laughs) Bad news. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about not living as if everything in your life had some kind of cosmic weight because our focus is not ultimately here and now. We know that God, God's kingdom has broken out, and that is where our hope resides. And here's what it applies to this issue of singleness. Our deepest desires for love and acceptance and closure and unity and security will never be met in this life. And even if you're in the best marriage, you know that to be the case. Nobody in this life will have complete closure. Now, again, there's different degrees of healthiness, but here's the deal. If you don't have a family, Paul would say, don't get too worked up because you are part of a family, and one day your deepest longings for connection and community will be realized in the kingdom that is breaking out, that is coming. If you long to be married, if you long, Paul says, hey, you know what? Don't get too wound up in that, because there is a wedding of all weddings that will make the best possible wedding you can have seem like nothing. It's the wedding of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, when it comes to Um, choosing wisely in light of this world. We need to do so, Paul says, in light of the world that's to come. This segs into our last point, sandwiched between his advice to those who find themselves single and those who are considering marriage. Paul reveals a governing principle when it comes to not just marital status, whether you're single or married, but really to everything and to everyone. And this is found in verses 17 to 24. Paul says, only Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his calling already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his calling uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition you are called, let them remain with God. This is odd. This is really weird. This is why this is a confusing, confusing passage. Here we are in the middle of talking about singleness and marriage and divorce, and then Paul starts talking about circumcision and slavery, <laughs> right? Like, great, Paul. It's like, have you ever listened to somebody talking about something, and they go off on one thing here, and then they bring another thing, and you're like, wait, how do we, what are you doing here, guy? Okay, so, and it's also a little troubling. You know, it's a little troubling. On the surface, it looks like Paul is keeping with the status quo. Really? I mean, was it not Karl Marx who criticized religion, saying that it was the opening of the people because it kept people distracted while they remained in positions of oppression? So Paul, we need to understand here, here's really what's going on. Paul is not against people availing themselves of change. He says that more than once. There's nothing wrong with availing yourself of change if you are in an oppressive or difficult or demanding or hard situation. He's making a point. He's not giving an essay on slavery or on circumcision. And here's his point. And actually, rather than being conservative, it's quite liberal. All right? The point is the same point he makes in Galatians 3.28. And this is it. 
In Galatians 3.28, he says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying the most important thing about you is not any particular identity marker, whatever it is, whether it's class, that's the slavery bit, whether it's race, gender, blue state, divorced, home, level of education, your marital status, none of it is ultimately the most important thing about you. God ultimately does not care about these things. There is many different ways to follow Jesus as there are people with different circumstances in life. The meaning of our lives does not hinge on these things. It hinges on whether or not we are living for God. And by the way, this is a relief. This has become, identity markers is such a big issue in our culture. And, and there's another issue behind it, which is some people are getting so wound up in the discussion that they're forgetting that ultimately identity markers are not what is most true about us and what matters. It's what God thinks of us. It's what God thinks of us. I like how the message puts it. Don't be wishing you were somewhere, you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you to live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. So I think what Paul's getting at here, let me just kind of boil it down. I think what Paul's getting at here is he's saying this. Are you sitting around waiting for some big change for your life to begin? Is your life going to finally take off when you reach retirement? Are you really going to do things for God once you get your career established? Is that when you're really going to get serious about living for God? Are you waiting for the one to come along? Are you waiting until you're a certain financial position? Are you waiting until you have a certain kind of alignment of circumstances or some kind of change? Paul says this, don't wait. Don't wait around. Start living for God now from where you're at. Why? Because you are right where God wants to start you living for him. <laughs> You're right in the right spot. When you become a Christian, this world and its circumstances get radically redefined, and they no longer should carry the same kind of weight they once did. They no longer should be the thing that defines us, that owns us, that we're trying to suck some kind of meaning out of life with. We've been freed from that, and now we see that all of life has a radically, a radical different understanding a different way. And that creates all kinds of opportunity, and that includes our marital status. That, you, see, you see that very different when you become a Christian. Sadly, the church hasn't caught up with Paul, <laughs> right? Sadly, the church is still idolizing marriage, and we keep spinning out this same Disney kind of themed view of marriage. We're still in Ephesians 5. Paul has Ephesians 5, a very glorious picture of marriage, right? Christ and the church. But then we see in 1 Corinthians 7 this corrective. Actually, there's a lot of marriage can be hard. And actually, the reality is, is that, and, and Ephesians 5 is like, hey, our hope is actually ultimately the best marriages can point towards Christ and the church. But, but Jesus says in heaven there's neither giving nor taking of marriage. And if you're single, you already have a leg up on heaven. You can come talk to me later about what it's like if you're married. And I'll fill you in a little bit. So, let's bring, it, let's bring the horses back into the stable. What do you think when you think of singleness? What do you think? Somebody that's, you know, 
plan B, somebody that's kind of an embarrassment, someone that we're hoping for something less than a tragedy. You know what Paul saw? Paul saw people that were given a tremendous gift for his kingdom. And I look forward to the day when the church sees single people, and we say, as Paul said, wow, it is good that you are single. It is a gift that you are single. We're going to pray for you. You've been given an amazing gift. If you're a widow or a widower, if you're someone that's gone through the trauma of some kind of separation or divorce, you know what? You are walking into this house, and we say, God has plans for you. God has a future for you. God wants to use you, and you are going to be a powerful team. If you put yourself at the feet of Jesus, God will use you as a powerful tool for his kingdom. And that is exciting, and that is good news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came to show us that our lives, which are defined so often by silly categories that everyone's running after in order to kind of suck some kind of meaning out of their life, Lord, that you showed us that we can have a deeper way to be human and that you showed us that it's not found in our bank account, it's not found in our job, it's not found in our gender, it's not found in our marital status, it's found in you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a new lease on life and a new way to view life. And in that, we can find tremendous joy. We praise you and we thank you for that. Help us as a community to enter more deeply into this life and may it be reflected in the way we treat and honor one another. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.